0: This week on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. And I squeeze the trigger to
1: fire and I see a missile come off my wingman's airplane. It's his fourth missile. His missile goes up, makes a turn, and then hits a piece, the airplane. But my missile went all the way straight up the tailpipe all the way to the 17th stage of the compressor and just disintegrates the airplane. Hey, what are you doing? Hold on, there's more. So I... I'd pick up the phone, and it's Don Simpson. And Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer were the two producers. And he says, Pete, Pettigrew, he says, hey, I've got a deal for you. How would you like to be technical advisor on the movie Top Gun? And I said, well, I don't know anything about it.
0: Okay, now...
2: Welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapons systems, and, most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, retired U.S. Navy fighter pilot, Vincent Aiello. Ready.
0: Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Today, we are jumping straight to the interview because we have yet another distinguished visitor joining us here on the show. Now, we happen to be in a room where the acoustics are not ideal, but I know you'll forgive us for that. And let's meet our guest. He is originally from Glencoe, Illinois. He attended Stanford University and was commissioned through the ROTC from that school in 1964. He attended Navy pilot training and was winged in 1966 and was initially assigned the F-4 Phantom. He performed three 10-month combat deployments in Vietnam. He was an instructor at VF-121 and also an instructor LSO. And while in that capacity, he was invited to participate in a brand new school at NAS Miramar called Top Gun, where he was the first replacement pilot. He eventually went on to numerous other commands and was in command of VF-302, a reserve F-4 squadron. He retired as a Rear Admiral Upper Half in the Reserves with over 34 years of total service, 3,500 flight hours in the F-4 Phantom alone. His decorations include the Silver Star, the Distinguished Flying Cross, and numerous air medals. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Rear Admiral Pete Pettigrew, call sign Viper. Viper, welcome to the show, sir.
1: Ah, You're welcome. Glad to be here.
0: Excellent. Well, we have an exciting discussion lined up for our listeners today. But first, before that, anything? I know there's a lot more I could have said about your background. Anything critical you think I should have covered there?
1: (laughs) Well. Well, I swam at Stanford and I played water polo and we were national champions my senior year at uh, No kidding. Yeah, at Stanford University. We were okay. the, we were the best water polo team in the world.
0: You know, I played water polo in high school but I wasn't near good enough for college. So I have even more appreciation for you now. And certainly I bet like me, you had no trouble with the water survival part of your training.
1: <laughs> no, I did okay.
0: Okay, outstanding. Well, there's two major parts of your life that I would like to dissect on the show today, and that is your experience in Vietnam, specifically on May 6, 1972, as we'll get to in a moment, and then almost, gosh, what, 20 years after that, a little involvement you had with Tinseltown up the street here from us in San Diego. But before we get to that, can you just tell us what inspired you to join the military in the first place, specifically the Navy coming from Illinois?
1: Well, my sister had a boyfriend named Kenny McGilvery, who went to Villanova on an ROTC scholarship, and I thought to myself, "Wow, I, sounds like a pretty good deal, you know? You get to go to school for free." So I, uh, my senior year, signed up for ROTC, uh, much as you probably did. Took the test, and they called me back, and I went through all the procedures, and they. And then I got a I got a letter from Stanford University saying, hey, you're accepted at Stanford University. And by the way, you're accepted under the ROTC program, which meant I got to go to Stanford University for free. <laughs> Pretty good deal. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it
0: sounds like you excelled while you were
1: there. What did you study? I was a biology major. But uh, you have to understand, I, I minored in animal behavior, and that's why I became a fighter pilot. <laughs> You
0: understood your squadron mates pretty well. (laughs) I I knew my place in life. (laughs) Outstanding. Okay. So aviation, was that an obvious choice after ROTC, or did that come along as well somewhere along the way?
1: Well, as much like you did, I probably did. I did a a midshipman cruise on a destroyer, and I decided that uh, I didn't like destroyers that much And my other choice was aviation or submarines, and I didn't think I was going to enjoy submarines, so I went into aviation.
0: Okay, so you you took it as almost a, not an afterthought, but it wasn't the burning urge you had from a a young man of five years old to uh, be a fighter pilot someday, but that's good. Okay, and then you went to F-4s, and you immediately deployed in 1967 aboard the Coral Sea, is that correct? That's correct. Wow, and that was a treacherous time to be deployed over Vietnam. Well, it's like you say,
1: you either get there at the right time or the wrong time, depending on how you feel about the whole thing. For me, personally, we got there in like, I think, my first combat mission was in like June um, of 67. And I think I had one combat mission down south in South Vietnam, and the next one was up way up north and uh, you found out the meaning of being shot at. <laughs> so, yeah, it got, to be, it got to be very, very quickly very, very difficult. What I mean by difficult is each of the missions, you, you know, you're, you're sort of wondering whether, whether it was going to work out very well or not.
0: Well, I would think that was more poignant based on the fact that you had probably squadron mates and friends on the ship that it did not work out for. Well, I lost a third of my first squadron. <laughs>
1: Wow. We lost five airplanes in about uh, two months over like uh, September, October, November. We got first two, the CO was shot down by a surface-to-air missile. His wingman was shot down by a surface-to-air missile. Then about a week later, I think our admin officer got shot down by a surface-to-air missile. And then about two weeks later, the ops officer and his wingman both got shot down by MiG's. And that was over about a two-month period, and we lost, we lost five airplanes, which is
0: about—you usually carry 13 airplanes, and that's about a third of the squadron. Wow. You know, something I've always wondered, and this not to trivialize that loss, certainly that's great and for the families and the squadron mates left behind, but I've always wondered, do you then receive new airplanes and new pilots all the time? I mean, do they fly in from somewhere else? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah you do. Well, for a while,
0: you operate with what you've got. Sure. But
1: the Navy's very, very good at getting new pilots out there, and they they got, like, five more pilots and radar intercept officers who flew airplanes out that came from, from Miramar, from San Diego, and they just replaced the guys that were there that, that had been shot down. And we, we didn't get any of them back. We got about half of them back at the end of the war. Sure, in 1973. In 73. Right. But... Uh, <laughs> we, my squadron, VF-151, was sort of notable for a while because at the Hanoi Hilton, we had the most residents from one, squad, one Navy squadron in the Hanoi Hilton at no the kidding. same time.
0: Wow. <laughs> well, that is an amazing experience I can't even begin to imagine. But take us to, if you would, I believe it was your, what, third deployment in 70, 72. 72 and on May 6th you were flying and tell us first off who was your rio for that deployment <laughs>
1: that's another story in
0: itself Oh dear
1: it was a guy named Mike McCabe who later became a three-star admiral he was okay. third, he was third fleet and Mike McCabe was the air wing staff he was on the air wing staff and he was a stash right. he had never he had never been to the to, to VF-121 as a student, <clears throat> he only had about, I don't think he'd ever had a hop in the F-4. He'd been to school, so he had his wings, but he'd never been in the F-4. And he was on the staff, and the air wing commander was a guy named Hunt Hardesty, who was a very, very famous aviator, probably one of the most famous people and probably, probably one of the heroes of mine that I wanted to work for more than anybody else. Uh, In fact, he held the low altitude speed record at the time of about 950 miles an hour, (laughs) which I think he still owns. He's dead now. But anyway, he had McCabe on the staff and McCabe was going to go to and he was going to go to train as a radar intercept officer. But when I came into the air wing, Hunt Hardesty took me aside and said, Pete, you know, I've got this guy, Mike McCabe and I, I want to keep him on the staff for the cruise because his father was killed in an F-9 accident at Alameda just after the Korean War. He's a good guy. <clears throat> He's never been through training, but I'd like him to fly with you because you just were instructing in the rag, and you, pro- and you instructed a top gun. So he said, you probably know about, uh, as much about training a guy as me sending him to the, to the replacement air group squadron. So will you fly with him? I said, sure, I'll fly with him. So we deployed early. I thought I was going to get like three or four weeks of flying to train him, but about a week after I got to the to, as a, as this Air Wing LSO, the Kitty Hawk deployed a month early, actually six weeks early. So we deployed. I didn't get to fly with him because we went straight over there. I think I got one hop with him before I flew with him in combat. His second hop in the F four was a combat mission up north over North Vietnam because we had just started bombing in the north again. Wow! And then, and within, within, and he was an ensign then. And within about uh, two months. He had uh, a, a silver star, a distinguished flying cross.
0: That's what we call trial by
1: fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and, and it turned out he was a great Rio. He became a great radar intercept officer, became a great radar intercept officer. And about halfway through cruise, they took him away from me. Oh. And they said, no, nah, we're going we're gonna to give him to somebody else. Sure. <laughs> and, 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 and he just got better and better and better and then turned out being a three-star admiral. Wow.
0: Is that how you got the call sign wizard? Yes. Okay. Well, no. When he,
1: when he, do you know
0: him? No, I just know. I think he came up and briefed us at Top Gun. Once, oh, yeah, he did. Yeah, and I'm, I'm familiar with the name from, from the reading.
1: He's a fascinating guy, but uh, that was not his call sign when he first got to the squadron. Oh, I'm
0: sure it was something a little more, yeah, less glamorous. It was, okay.
1: It, it was Bambi.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so he was Bambi for about. Oh, eight dear. months, and then he decided he wanted to be wizard. <laughs> oh, he decided himself, huh? Okay. Yeah.
0: Well, it stuck because he had a silver star and a distinguished uh, All right. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, if you would, tell us, please, about the mission that you flew in as part of a two ship of F-4s on May 6, 1972. First off, what were you going out to do on that day?
1: Oh, we were a mid-cap.
0: So you were a mid-cap. So oh, yeah. you were equipped with all air-to-air weapons?
1: Oh, well, I start, when with started out, it was going to... We we were on cyclic duty. We weren't doing alpha strikes, but the Coral Sea thought they they had a couple of uh, airplanes, mig seventeen, stuck at at Bithong Airfield, which is about halfway down from Hanoi down towards Vinh. and uh, so they thought they had they had st- stuck them on the runway. They couldn't get off the runway, so we switched from cyclic ops to an alpha strike on Bithong to, to try to catch those aircraft, catch the airplanes. Sure. And so they switched me from a bar cap to a mid cap, and then there were two mid cap stations. One was going to be feet dry, and the other was going to be feet wet. And I didn't get the the mid cap station that I wanted, which would have been feet dry. I got the feet wet one. So they launched us off the front end. Of the sh- this is this is an education for you, and and you know all the plans that you have. Turn to hell as as soon <laughs> mean nothing, right? As soon as you as soon as you launch off the catapult, it all goes away. So I launch thinking that, that I'm going on a mid cap over water, and we're gonna tank overhead the ship. So we tank overhead the ship, and there were four of us. The, the mid cap, the CO, guy named um, Duke Pitson was going to go on the on the feet dry one which was the better midcap cap station. Sure
0: because you're over land and yeah, that's you're just I, if I can interrupt you I spend a lot of time on the show reminding people who didn't live the life we did what that means so I think they could figure it out though feet dry is when you've left the ship you go over land and feet wet is you stay over the water so anyway please continue. So we get over the we get over the
1: tanker as a four plane and Pitson says hey he says, my radar's not working, why don't you take my mid-cap station and take my wingman and I'll take your mid-cap station and your wingman. And I wasn't going to say no to that, but it, it, it made a difference because we were sort of short of sidewinder missiles. <clears throat> and instead of carrying four, I only had two because originally I was going to bar cap station and they couldn't change the ordinance. So that meant that that I had two sidewinders, and my wingman, who had been Pitson's wingman, had four sidewinders. So okay. the configurations are different on the airplanes, which ends up making a bit of a difference. So we leave the tanker and go in, and we we went to a place called the Hourglass Rivers to coast in. If you... If, you do it enough, and you, you get to know North Vietnam, and you get to know the threat areas and the non-threat areas. And there was a place called the Hourglass wi- Rivers, which was just south of Thanh Hoa, which w- was a pretty good coast-in area because it was pretty boggy, and there weren't any SAM sites there. They couldn't fit any there. Uh-huh. So so I always looked for places where I knew SAM sites weren't right there, and I sure. could, I could find corridors I could get into... That would work to get inland. And I was looking for a MIG cap station that would have been about halfway between Bythong and Kep, which was where any MIGs would come from. And then we'd orbit there. And then we, that's where we could engage if we had to. Do uh, you want to
0: know more? <laughs> Absolutely. So, So, but first off, why was there a shortage of missiles? Was the ship just Using them up too quickly?
1: Yeah, they were using them up. There always been, always seemed to be a little bit of a, short of a shortage of missiles. And, uh, in fact, in 67 we were short of missiles, and in 72 we were short of missiles. No kidding.
0: Okay. So you are now feet dry on a mid-cap with a wingman you hadn't briefed with, but you all know the procedures well enough that you could pick up a wingman of opportunity, yeah. essentially. Yeah. You've got different configuration, at least for missiles. I assume you had, what, probably one center line fuel tank? Yeah. And all there. Did yeah. you have any Sparrow? Uh, I had two Sparrows. Okay. And so now you're overland and just, yeah, please, tell us what happens next. Well, you
1: as an ex-instructor at Top Gun know that uh, things turn to worms pretty quick. Oh, sure. <clears throat> And uh, so we're going, we're going inland, and we get a vector from about 80 miles. And it says, okay, we have bandits for you. Uh, I think the call was 330 at 80 or
0: something like and that. And this is your controlling AIC or Aero Yeah, it was 7? the USS Chicago, which okay, so was, they're a, providing which was a cruiser. Okay.
1: And, and they gave very, very, very good control. Which we didn't normally have. We were not noted, uh, well, uh, the US Navy, I think, was not noted at that time for having great control, but they were giving us good control. So they give us uh, 80 miles, we go in, and we're going fast, probably 500, 550, something like that. We're in afterburner all the way in because, uh, as you probably all know, F uh, four smoke when they're in basic engines. So you gotta go into first stage burner to get rid of the smoke. So we'd gone into first stage burner, and we were, I think, fifteen thousand feet, maybe a little less than that, <clears throat> heading in. And then we got sixty miles, forty miles, thirty miles, and we're in uh, what's called combat spread, which is about three quarters of a mile of beam each other. And we're loaded for bear; we're ready to ready to do it. And so all of a sudden, the control got even better, and he says, "Okay, there are thirty miles, twenty miles. Look low." Uh, two blue bandits, and I said, do we have a clear-to-fire? A uh, blue bandit was a MiG-21. Right. Uh, he said, two blue bandits, and, a, and if, if they were called blue bandits, that was supposed to be a clear-to-fire in the code. That meant we were clear-to-fire. But I said, are we clear-to-fire? And he said, yes, you're clear-to-fire. So we got to 10 and 8, and uh, at about 8 miles, looking down, and it was pretty late in the afternoon, so it was into the sun, but it was uh, pretty clear with a a little bit of haze below. But man, at eight miles, all four of us, two people in each airplane, saw four MiG-21s. It wasn't two. That's amazing. The the two that we thought were going to be there ended up being four. And I thought to myself, oh, that's good (laughs) news. And it's good news because I just thought, I I think the dance floor is full. I think everybody that's going to be here is here. And that's what I wanted. If it had just been two of them, I would have said, well, where's the other two? But it was four. So I said, I think I think the dance card is full now, and we're all here. All right. So I was really excited. And we were about eh, 40 degrees angle off the tail, and they were in a left-hand turn in a, what I'd call a box four. Wingmen were fairly tight. And we just jumped in on them. And uh, wingmen... Uh, uh, who was Bob Hughes, a guy named Bob Hughes, who was later killed in a midair collision at 121. Oh, so you hear that. Uh, yeah, he was lieutenant and ended up getting killed. but he immediately well we're about 45 degrees angle off the tail <clears throat> on the hot side. Well, the hot side is inside the turn.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and we're doing about my, this time we're probably doing 5,25 or something like that, and they're in a pretty hard left-hand turn. Well, he, he squeezes off a missile. And I thought, eh, too much angle off. I don't think it's going to guide. It's about 45 degrees angle off at about maybe a mile. Sidewinder, AIM-9 Delta, I think. It was either a Delta or a Gulf. Very, very good missile. I mean, the missile to use in that particular, in that war. Yeah, Yeah, not an (laughs) AIM-9X. Anyway, he fires, and I thought, it's not going to guide. And boy, it just cranks a turn really, really hard. to The inside of the turn goes on down clips a piece off the airplane and then the airplane starts to smoke and falls out of formation and I thought to myself well do I follow this airplane down and try to confirm it or do I go on to the next guy and I thought well I'll follow him down so I I sort of followed him down for maybe two or three seconds and I saw that my wingman had broken to the inside of the turn and he was going after the number three guy (laughs) And I he's said, trying to
0: whittle away at this formation.
1: And I said, <laughs> I said to myself, hey, uh, here I am trying to follow down his and confirm his MIG, and he's trying to shoot mine down. And I thought, screw him. <laughs> <laughs> he, could, he can confirm his own MIG. I'm, right. I'm going for number three. Well, what I had done, I had sort of gone down to the outside of the turn and then squared the corner. And we'd been closing on him the whole time. And I've got my radar intercept officer. I'm saying, you look at the two guys in front and tell me what they're doing. Tell me if they're a threat or not, because i got to work on this guy, on the number three guy. And I'm closing pretty fast. And then all of a sudden, I get to about 3,500 feet behind him, and I'm closing pretty hard. And I realize that I'm in, a, I'm in a position to fire, but I don't hear a tone. And the reason I don't hear it, you get a tone if you get... Sure. The sidewinders are ready yep, to Yep, we've discussed that on the show yeah. before. Okay. okay. So I realized that I'm safe, and I'm in radar instead of heat. Uh, and I have, I have reasons for why I did that, which are probably not real good. But I could explain it to you, but it'd take me an hour, because I'd have to explain a lot of the, <laughs> of the mechanisms and how the system worked. Okay. So I armed and went to sidewinder and got this huge tone. But now I'm down to about 2,500 feet, dead six on a MiG-21 in a slight left-hand turn. And I squeeze the trigger to fire, and I see a missile come off my wingman's airplane. It's his fourth missile. And there's a half-second delay from the time you squeeze the trigger to the missile comes off the rail. So I know that my missile was half a second behind his missile. His missile goes up, makes a turn, and and then hits a piece... And I saw a piece come off the airplane, but the problem was my missile went all the dead straight, because I was dead six, went all the way straight up the tailpipe all the way to the 17th stage of the compressor and just disintegrates the airplane. I mean, there there's, there wasn't a piece bigger than, than a little piece of titanium wow. left, except for the cockpit. Everything behind the cockpit had turned into little tiny pieces, and luckily I... I rolled off a little bit to the right after I fired, and so all the pieces of the airplane came down the left-hand side. Otherwise, I would have eaten them, because I think I fired from about 2,000 feet.
0: Just right dead six. so the missile just went dead, right up his tailpipe. Dead six. But...
1: I never saw the missile wow. correct. Never, missile never corrected. Just it was like it was a, a rocket or something. A kind of laser beam. beam. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So airplane disintegrates, and then he ejects out of what's left, which was just the cockpit, shoot opens. I go down the starboard side. <clears throat> well now we have made a 300 degree turn pretty much and the the, the guys that, that were the, ahead of us had tried to get around to our stern but they were on the inside of the turn and they couldn't come to bear on us at mm-hmm. all. They were, they were still nose away but trying to close on us. And now we're passing sort of an easterly heading and I knew he was out of missiles and I knew I only had one missile left. And we're not really low on gas, but uh, I knew that we, if we engaged the, the next two that we would be able to turn into them and meet them head on, but then we'd be going west, yeah, west again, and we'd be going the wrong direction against two MiG-21s, and we only had one missile between
0: us. And no guns.
1: And no guns, yeah, right. no guns. We had sparrows, but my sparrows were not working. Oh. I couldn't get them to tune, okay. which is a whole other story in itself which I usually give to the instructors at at Top Gun because it's a lecture in itself on know your airplane Mm -hmm. and know what your airplane's capabilities are.
0: I think a famous Chinese warrior said something along those lines. Yeah, know yourself, know the enemy. Okay.
1: So I said, hey, let's get out of here. So we're now heading east and so we just stayed low. The whole thing had taken place going down. Sure. So I, I don't think we were more than about 3,000 feet above the ground.
0: Which sounds low, but really isn't in some no, cases. No, no. You guys could fight right down to the treetops. Well, not that you want to. <laughs> no, No. <laughs> yeah, okay.
1: And I didn't certainly didn't want to, although we've had engagements like that. I haven't had an engagement like that, but the Navy's had engagements sure. like that. So we just went east in, uh, in Burner and just continued in Burner. The uh, MiG-21s limited, I think, 515 knots below 15,000 feet. And then we were doing probably 550 or 580 or something like that. So we knew they couldn't catch us. <clears throat> so uh, we just went out in Burner until and they, they broke off about, they, they never got closer in about maybe, Two miles,
0: wow.
1: and we just ran out. But and if then, you
0: were that low, even at that speed, were not surface air missiles a, a danger at that point?
1: Uh, nobody fired anything, <clears throat> and good. of course we went out sort of the same way we came in. Okay. So we went out through the hour. Remember, I said the hourglass sure. rivers. Yeah, we went out through the hourglass rivers, and we didn't get anything fired at us. That's amazing. So, so we went out, feet wet, tanked. An A six tanker came in for us. Tank got plenty of gas. Went back to the ship. Did a victory roll. They, you know, asked for a low pass, and they said, "Sure, sure." Came, went by, and did, did doing about five fifty. Okay. <laughs> and did victory rolls, and then came back into the break, and, and then everybody. It was very much like the movie Top Gun, which I know none of you have ever seen. But the movie <laughs> Top Gun, after they get the kills, they're all jumping around at on the, the, end of the movie. on the flight deck at the end of the movie. <laughs> very similar to what would happen to us. No you kidding. Know? Co the Co of the carrier came down and. And told us how wonderful it was, and all the enlisted guys were there. It was, it was, it was just (laughs) like the movie.
0: Well, I wonder if that being a fantastic segue, if anyone might have had some sort of input from someone when they did make that movie 20 years later to include that scene. So years later, in fact, you were involved with the making of the movie Top Gun. And in fact, correct me if I'm wrong, Viper, you have a cameo in that movie. You were the older gentleman that Maverick warned Charlie against in the bathroom when they first meet.
1: Yeah. What's my name? I got to remember. You had a name in the movie? Yeah, I
0: was in the credits as being Perry Seidenthal. (laughs) That almost Uh, sounds like an adult film name, not that I would know. Well, it (laughs) uh, it, might have been good. (laughs) Okay. Well, anyway, we jumped right into it. But at some point in the early 80s, somehow you were involved with the making of that movie. What can you tell us about that experience? Well,
1: um, I became a reserve admiral, and I also flew in the airlines. And I was in a a gate hold area in uh, Phoenix, Arizona and I got a call from scheduling, and <clears throat> scheduling said, hey, we've got a guy on the phone that needs to talk to you. And I said, what are you, what are you talking about? And he, <laughs> <clears throat> he said, no, this guy says he's got to talk to you. And so I pick up the phone, and it's Don Simpson. And Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer were the two producers. And he <clears throat> says, Pete, Pettigrew, he says, hey, I've got a deal for you. How would you like to be technical advisor on the movie Top Gun? And I said, well, I don't know anything about it. And he said, well, uh, you've been recommended to be the the uh, technical advisor for a movie we're going to do. And we'd like you to come up to uh, Paramount and meet with us and see if, if we can get a deal for you to be the technical advisor because we understand you taught at Top Gun and that you have a lot of experience. And <clears throat> so I went up and, and talked to them, and then they invited me back. We went out to dinner with Tom Cruise. Then they hired me on on it, and I, but they didn't have a screenplay, so Jack Epps was a writer. He and Jim Cash wrote together, and they were the two original writers for the screenplay. So he came down, and I showed him around Top Gun. We spent time at going around the airplanes and talking about Top Gun and what it was all about. And he spent a Wednesday night at the Officers Club, which was sort of a fun place to be anyway.
0: In the early 80s. In the early 80s. Yeah, not so much not anymore. Not so much anymore. <laughs> it's kind of boring now. It, this is the new Navy. <laughs> yeah, anyway. That's why we're both here, right? That's so true. can we thank you for the O-Club scene in the movie? I mean, it sounds like they had a blank slate of paper when they wrote this and they met you.
1: Well, no, I wouldn't claim that. I okay. mean, I, I, the, I could tell you there are a thousand stories in the Naked City, and I could tell you about the O-Club scene at Miramar which was not Miramar it wasn't filmed at Miramar everybody thinks it's Miramar but it's not it was shot at a bar up on 55th street actually i don't think it's still there but it was a gay bar at the time really called the Roxy and it, it's claim to fame was it had an it had a U-shaped bar so they took all the stuff out of the Wax off bar uh, at Miramar Woks off is a is a meteorological term for weather so bad that you can't go anywhere, so they turned turn it, turn it into a bar. Okay, So they took all the stuff out of the Waxoff Bar and put it into this Roxy, this, Roxy, room. the Roxy, and then filmed it there. And then a lot of people think that that was Miramar, but that, that actual base was a place called the Roxy. Okay, We filmed there for three days, and I'm not sure it's still there. The other bar, of course, is the more famous one, which is the Kansas City Bar.
0: Yeah, right downtown San Diego. Downtown
1: San Diego, which has claimed to be the sleazy bar scene.
0: Well, it's where goose is playing great balls of fire. Right, that's and, right. And then that's at right. the end, they meet there again. Okay. So you were the technical advisor for this movie. I mean, can my wife thank you for the volleyball scene? Uh, What about the fact that we're fighting over mountains at 100 feet, but we have a hard deck? I mean, sorry to to bust your stones here, Pete, but I got to represent. Wait, no, no, no. That's not the worst.
1: (laughs) And you know what the worst is. What's the worst? I can tell you all the awful things about the movie. And what's the worst? The single
0: worst that I fought against and fought against and just lost. Are we talking movie here as far as like interweaving the love story or the fact that Maverick's over land one second and then ejects over sea another? Well,
1: that's another issue. That's <laughs> one of the biggest mistakes. I can anyway. explain all that. <laughs> The uh, no, what I'm thinking of is the Top Gun trophy. Ah, yes, and that was the thing that they told me we've got to have a Top Gun trophy. And I said we can't have a Top Gun trophy. There's no Top Gun trophy. This is Top Gun. You know, these guys are such alpha males that if they had a Top Gun trophy and somebody won it. Nobody would ever graduate. <laughs> They'd just be mid-airs all the time. <laughs> so I said, we can't have a Top Gun trophy. And they said, we are going to have a Top Gun trophy.
0: I spend a lot of effort on this show, Viper, explaining the difference between Hollywood and real life. And, and I'm okay with it. I'm at peace with it now because... If they did a movie about our real world, even possibly in Vietnam, I think it'd be, it wouldn't be it would do very well. I no. think it would be kind of boring. Yeah. So you have to have a little drama. You have to have, I guess, a little volleyball. I don't know. I keep coming back to that. But, I mean, it's got to make it an exciting movie or nobody's going to show up to yeah. watch it.
1: So you're right. The uh, low altitude to high altitude, is there are two big mistakes or errors. I call them errors in the movie. One of them is high-low. We've got... Uh, I do not go below 10,000 feet, and then you're down in the weeds going around, and then yeah. he says, I was, only, I was only below 10,000 feet for a, for a few seconds. I took the shot. I had the shot. I took the shot. The biggest one is water land, yeah. <clears throat> and that's because we shot looking down over water off Miramar in Clay Lacy's Learjet. We did that in August, and in September, we went up to Fallon, and we went up in the mountains above Fallon. You know where Lone Rock is? You know. Oh, sure. Well, we were in the mountains just to the east, and and we had all our cameras there, and with, and everybody would come up the Owens Valley, and then they'd turn left, turn right, and we just had all these cameras on them, and we just cut it that way. Well, about the second night we were up there, we were looking at the dailies. Tony Scott was a good friend of mine. He was the director, great guy. And I ran up to him, and we were looking at the dailies. It's daily is uh, the daily shoot. It's everything you shot in one day, and they look at it the next night. So you know as you're going along whether you're getting enough to edit out what's mm-hmm. rotten. And, uh, and I, 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 I looked at the dailies from that day's shoot, and it's pebbles and rocks and ever They're all running around in the, in the dirt. And I went to Tony Scott, and I said, Tony, we've got 10,000 feet in the can looking down over water, and now you're shooting... The desert, we can't do that. It it won't work. And he just looked at me and he said, Ah, Pete, he said, editors can do anything.
0: <laughs> and the audience is forgiving, I'm guessing.
1: And we did run into a bit of a problem. And I said, you know, and not only that, we've got him running around in the weeds and we've got an injection over water. And he picked up over water. And so they said, Well, we can probably solve that. And I said, Well, what? And he said they so they put in this little insertion. Audio in it saying
0: they're drifting over water. Is yeah, there, he's in a there... flat spin going yeah. out to sea. Yeah, that's yeah. right. If Grand were here, he'd charge me a bunch of money every time I reference it. But anyway, yeah, so again, you know, you, you can work with what you have to make it exciting. Okay, but what about the character Viper? Do you take any credit for that?
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. I was Perry Seidenthal. Oh, Viper, you mean the CEO? Yeah. I was never the CEO, and I went to the writers. Uh, the two writers are Cash and Epps. Cash lived in Michigan State. He taught at Michigan State. Jack Epps taught at USC. And they wrote wrote together, but hardly ever met each other because Jim Cash wouldn't fly. He hated airplanes. Hmm. Jim Cash has since died. He was a very, very nice man, but he died about 10 years ago.
0: I think Tony Scott has also, right? Tony
1: Scott committed suicide. He jumped off the San Pedro Bridge. He's another one gone.
0: Uh,
1: Don Simpson, one of the directors, uh, it has been dead for 15, 20 years. Wow. Yeah, you sort of wonder about that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, But you were saying... I- oh, so the, Jack Epps came to me and said, Pete, we want to use your call sign. We want to use the Viper call sign. Because we had spent hours and hours going over every call sign we could find. And Jack, Jack said, uh, we, we want to use Viper. And I said, well, yeah, what do you want to use it for? I have some pride. <laughs> and they said, we want Viper to be the CEO Top Gun. I said, the problem with that is I was never the CEO Top Gun. I taught there, but I was never the CEO. Viper's my call sign, but I was never the CEO. And they said, well, don't worry about that. We want to use it, and we want to use it for the CEO. And I, they were being very nice about that. And so they did, they did use it, and it's gone down in history. And so I've been Viper for many, many, many years. And of course, you got to understand that sometimes call signs change a little bit.
0: And they used to call me Viper, now they call me Diaper. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to get to that in a little bit. That's always our send-off question is, how did you get the call sign? But I have to imagine you took some ribbing from your buddies for being the technical advisor to the movie, and lo and behold, Tom Skerritt, the the cool guy, skipper of Top Gun, ends up with your call sign. I bet they think instead of you trying not to have that happen, you probably pushed for that, huh?
1: Well, oh, oh I think you're, are you setting me up? <laughs> <laughs> I know my
0: breed of people here, and it's your breed too. No, that's really true. Yeah. The, That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Okay, outstanding. Now, do you have a hand in the next movie? I understand they're starting. No, I have
1: had lunch with one of the technical advisors who has now gone off to be CEO of the Ford, a guy named Yank. uh, John Cummings is his name, good guy. Okay. But uh, Chaser, uh, who is the administrative head of Tailhook, Mm -hmm. is the new guy now. Okay. And I talk to him uh, usually once or twice a month. But I don't have anything to do with it. I just warn him. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, lots changed since they filmed it last time. So we'll see how they do on this movie. I have high hopes, but I'm also a little bit fearful. As we all are. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right, Viper. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the show today. We just have two final questions we al- always wrap up with. I already alluded to one of them. But before that... Uh, what's the future hold for you? I mean, obviously, you live in here in beautiful San Diego. You volunteer as a docent on the USS Midway, and I'm trying to get an episode set up with them. But what else is on your list of things to do? So I'm
1: back to swimming again. Uh, I played water polo up until about a year and a half ago, and then I quit that. Uh, I still swim, and I swim in the ocean quite a bit. And I docent on the Midway, and I'm retired
0: Outstanding. Well, you're enjoying the good
1: life. I'm 76 years old. (laughs) I'm lucky I'm still around.
0: Well, you still look like a spring chicken to me. All right. So the part I hope everyone's waiting for is Viper. That is entirely too cool of a call sign to have had as a young man. And you're a two-star admiral. So I'm a little suspect here, except that now I know part of the story about the movie. But that sure seems like one you gave yourself on the way out the door. No,
1: I gave it to myself. I was going to 121. As an instructor. And uh, when I was in 151, which were the vigilantes. Yeah, they're still around. Yeah, they still are around. Yep. And uh, they didn't have call signs at that time. Really? Yeah, They just nobody had individual call signs. But if you went to 121, you were supposed to have an original call sign. And as I was going to 121, I knew that uh, if I didn't give myself a call sign before I got there, They'd give me one, oh, of and I wouldn't like it. Yeah, like Bambi. <laughs> like Jell-O. <laughs> <laughs> That's not so bad. Come on. <laughs> oh, it rhymes. That's right. But anyway, uh, so a friend of mine was leaving 121, had the call sign Viper, which he'd give them to himself. And I actually asked him. I said, you know, you're leaving. You're going to the airlines. Do you mind if I take your call sign? <clears throat> and he said, no, 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 go ahead. So when I went into 121, I just kept telling him. I'm Viper, Viper, Viper.
0: And they accepted it. <laughs> and then it,
1: it, it just went on from there.
0: So You, you must have pulled the Jedi it, mind trick on them even years before yeah. Star Wars came out. It didn't become Diaper till later. <laughs> <laughs> well, you probably already know, but Top Gun still uses Viper as the lead red air element in their air-to-air missions. And they still use Showtime left over from Willie Driscoll's yeah. Vietnam exploits yeah. a few days after yours. And so that sounds like quite a legacy, plus the movie, you you quipped about it earlier, but you're absolutely right. Anyone listening to this knows of and has probably seen at least a dozen times the movie Top Gun. So on behalf of my listeners, Viper, number one, thank you for your 34 years of service to this country, but possibly even more (laughs) importantly to my listener is thank you for your involvement in a movie that so many millions of people adore. Yeah, well, I was happy to be here. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm happy to still be around. Well, well, we're happy to have you around. So just before I let you go, though, one more thing we could talk about for the future is I know you're involved with something happening May of 2019. What, what's that all about?
1: Ah, yes. For all you ex-Top Gun instructors, we are having the 50th anniversary of <coughs> the formation of Top Gun. First That's class right. t- took place in May of uh, 69, 1969. And it's in San Diego, and it's going to be at the Doubletree Hotel in the Mission Valley. And we're, we want all ex-instructors to be there for Thursday, Friday. And then if you were a Top Gun student, <clears throat> as you went through as a student, <clears throat> we'd like to have you there also. And so um, it's a four-day event. Uh, we're going to have dinner Friday night for the former instructors at the Doubletree. And then Saturday night, there's going to be a, a pretty much open uh, on the Midway dinner and so uh, if you just were a, a student or we call them patch wearers sure, a graduate. If, if, if you're a graduate of patch uh you're welcome Saturday night for sure and you'd be w- welcome to the ready rooms <clears throat> at any time which would be at the Doubletree so awesome. we'd love to have you there and uh,
0: of course if, if you're a former instructor we need to see you sure yeah. well I will do my best Viper to attract as many people as I can through the podcast here and my social media and I don't think they're the majority of my listeners I think they're all scoffing at me but we'll do our best maybe someone lives next to one we'll get those out there and we will look to see you at the 50th next year that'll be really cool yeah
1: and and remember they're probably only about what 490 I think is all we can think of former former actual instructors but they're probably 5,000 guys running around claiming they were
0: (laughs) well we'll see if we can weed some of them out All right. Well, Rear Admiral Pete Pettigrew, Viper, sir, thank you so much for today. I enjoyed learning about your experiences both in Vietnam and in Hollywood. So unless you've got any parting shots, I think we're going to wrap this up.
1: Uh, You're welcome. All right. And uh, don't forget to check six.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, once again, a big thanks, huge shout out to Rear Admiral Pete Pettigrew, call sign Viper. Viper, sir, thanks again for coming on the show. It was a lot of fun, and we'll see you at the reunion next year. Just a couple things I want to cover on what he talked about there. First off, I listened to myself in the interview, and I said something about the loss was great for the people that, you know, his squadron mates, and I trust that everybody understood, but I didn't mean great in a good way there. I meant a great loss as in a significant or bad loss. So, I don't know, Just it could have been misunderstood, and I hope it wasn't. And then also, he talked about a bar cap and a MIG cap. So using a soccer analogy, since there seems to be something going on with soccer lately, a bar cap is more of a barrier cap or a defense. Think of the players that are on the defensive side of the field trying to protect the goal. So that's what the fighters would be doing, to be kind of hanging off the coast, protecting the aircraft carrier and the strike group. And then a MIG cap It's just a MiG combat air patrol, and that's the offensive side of the field. Those are the ones going out looking to pick a fight, trying to shoot down MiGs if they can. Other than that, I assume you know what he means when he says check six there at the end, and if you don't, give me a shout, and we can explain that on a future episode. All right, well, we have a little extra time, and I know we have a different format, so let me bang through some quick announcements and then maybe even a question or two. First, once again, I've got some folks showing up on Patreon and just super thrilled and honored that they do. I've got new division leads, Rob Grady and Joe Campbell. I want to thank and welcome them. And also a new strike lead, that's the $25 a month level, Steven Sillett. And he gets, again, some extra goodies for helping out at that level. All right. Well, why don't we knock out a few questions while we have a few extra minutes here at the end of the show? The first is from James in Australia, who asks, from your Top Gun episode, I was wondering how likely it would have been in the real world for Maverick's engine to flame out and to have occurred by flying through another plane's jet wash. Well, how likely, James? I guess somewhat likely. I never flew the F-14, but what I know from others is that the F-14A, the engines were very susceptible to disruptions in airflow causing flame out. And so if Maverick was flying through jet wash with a high angle of attack or a rolling motion or any other other than steady flight, I suppose it's somewhat likely that he could have had a disruption and that could have led to a stall, which would lead to a flame out. And the thing about the F-18, I should say the F-14, but I'm going to compare it to the F-18, is that, as you know by looking at it, the engines are very wide, or they're spread apart on the aircraft. Whereas on the F-18, they're basically right on centerline. So if one engine at high thrust on both does flame out, then you have a significant yaw from the other. And so the idea being there that if, in fact, one engine did flame out at high thrust, then the resulting flat spin depicted in the movie is fairly common, I suppose. In fact, when I was at Top Gun, just before I got there, two Top Gun instructors had a situation and had to shell out of an F-14 near Fallon. And I don't know all the details, but I understand that they were dogfighting at the time and uh, had a stall situation. So, yeah, I think it's somewhat likely. James? All right, next is from David in Augusta, Georgia. He's called in and emailed in questions before. He says, between the F-16 and the F-18, which cockpit layout did you like better? Did you like the side stick on the F-16? Yes, I did like the side stick on the F-16, David. I think I've discussed this on previous episodes or maybe other people's shows I've been a guest on. It was very comfortable and natural. Plus, the F-16 seat was reclined, so you felt like you're sitting in your recliner at home with a TV remote in one hand and a drink in the other between the stick and the throttle. And so, you know, this always is a tough question because, you know, the F-18 was my first love, and the F-16 was kind of the Johnny-come-lately towards the end of my career. But the truth is, the F-16 reclined seating position in the side stick was very comfortable. So... I don't know. I'm not prepared to say I like the F-16 better. I suppose if I could have the seat and stick and throttle of the F-16, but the cockpit layout of the F-18, that would be maybe a favorite, but I don't know. I'm not ready to say, but I think you can get at what I'm hinting at. All right, next is Rob Evans from Kentonsville, Maryland. He says, how do, quote, CAG birds designs get selected and approved? And what he means there is the one aircraft out of the 10 or 11 that each squadron has. that's painted up in bright colors. I think we talked about that on the previous episode. Is a CAG aircraft only only flown by a squadron CO? Did you have any favorite designs? How well do the generally more exotic paint schemes or aggressor squadron aircraft work? A lot of Navy aircraft in World War II and jet fighter aircraft were painted dark blue instead of gray. Was there a different camo philosophy? Well, Rob, I think we talked about some of this on a previous episode. So the Cagbird designs, they are selected at the squadron level. Usually it's the same thing from year to year, but sometimes they'll go through a redesign and they have to use only a certain amount of paint. And it can't be, of course, tasteless or unclassy. And so, you know, they just... Probably I was never a squadron CO, but I imagine the squadron CO, if you wanted to repaint it, would go to the air wing commander and say, here's the design I'm intending to do and and get the permissions. But for the most part, other aircraft have a limit on how much colorful paint they can use on the CAG Bird. I've seen some where the entire aircraft was painted, so I'm not sure there's a limit or maybe they get a waiver if there is. No, the CAG Bird is not only flown by the squadron CO. If you remember way back to episode one, we had a similar question on do you only ever fly the aircraft with your name on it? And the answer to that one was also no. The maintenance control as they work with the operations department to have up aircraft ready to go for that day's flight schedule. They have to balance which aircraft are up, which are down, which are on the flight deck, if you're on the carrier, which are in the hangar and what's loaded with pylons and drop tanks for the proper configuration. And it may be that you fly the Cagbird. It may be that you fly the one with your name on it, or it may just be that you fly 407 and it really, you know, doesn't matter. So it usually doesn't, Get limited until there is a mass aircraft migration on or off the carrier or on or out of a deployment somewhere or detachment somewhere, in which case when everybody's flying all the airplanes, or at least most of the senior guys are, then they will generally put the squadron CO in his bird. And if the CAG is coming along, well, they'll put him in the CAG bird as well. How well do the generally more exotic paint schemes and aggressor squadron aircraft work? I think we talked about that before. Not that well. I mean, fairly well in the general. I know I'm vacillating here, but I mean, if you have a white airplane, and that is why, oh, by the way, they paint training aircraft white, well, then, yeah, you're going to be able to see that pretty well with a high visibility orange also. But otherwise, in the visual arena, it might make a difference discerning between two, but otherwise, not much of a difference. All right, let's look at... ECATS from Spain. He asks, "How was the Approach magazine regarded on the day-to-day squadron life? Was it an important tool to which to learn from, or, on the contrary, was it seen as a blame culprit? Don't do this again kind of stuff?" You know, that's a really interesting question, ECATS. And for everybody else, the Approach magazine was a safety magazine that showed up every month or so in the squadrons, and it was just summaries and been there, done that of safety things, not combat, but. Oh, you know, I'd forgotten, did this, and this happened. Or, you know, even sometimes fatalities, they'll have a quick summary of it, and you'll have some guy who can comment on that. And so, Ecats, I don't remember really anyone saying, oh, look, they're frying so-and-so when he did this. For the most part, it was meant and I think received as a way just to share information on things that people do that are mistakes or see stories or there I was, And no, generally they were not blaming or using it as a, hey, look at so-and-so, he buffooned himself, and let's all celebrate that. All right, how are we doing on time? Well, it looks like we got time for one more question. Let's go to Andrew Hull, whose question is from Facebook. Is there a defining moment in your career which you look back on with the most pride? Oh, boy, Andrew, that is a tough one. You know... There's a lot of things over my 25 years of service that I'm proud of. And equally, there's a lot of things I'm ashamed or embarrassed of that I wish I could go back and tell my, for example, fellow squadron mates, hey, you know what? I was young and immature. I'm sorry when I said that or did this. I'm sorry when I overreacted to that. But I think for the most part, there's plenty of times when I'm proud and certainly had Selection boards resulted a different way. I think it would have been the continuing upward advancements. But be that as it may with my career, I think I would look back and say my Top Gun tour, because it was just a testament to the human spirit. And I don't just mean mine. All the bros there that you might have heard about in episode seven, who go through the arduous tour that they do with just getting through the course, and then murder boards, and then all the qualifications, and then when you leave, just being at the absolute top of your game as a strike fighter pilot in the Navy, that for me was the pinnacle moment, and specifically probably when I finished my second murder board because it was as good as it was going to get. And it was three and a half hours of presentation with no peeking or reading notes or anything else. So that is, I think, a high point in a lot of people's career. They still look back fondly on it, and I certainly do too. But again, you know, doing operations for an entire air wing and working with a ship's operations officer and directing where the ship actually went physically and the operations where we flew – and just being involved in squadrons at different levels, whether it was writing the schedule or working on maintenance, all that was just amazing. I look back at my career fondly. But to your question, yeah, probably the, uh, the Top Gun tour. All right, well, on that deep note, I think we better wrap this up and get out of here. We always like to say that. I want to remind you that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of myself and my retired guest, and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. All right. Well, about the next time you see a new episode, you might also see a new Fighter Pilot Podcast website. So look for that here around the turn of July, August. And in the meantime, we'll see you on all the social media stuff. And you take it easy. Enjoy your summer. See ya.
2: Thank you for listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on all the usual social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, and to help support the show, visit our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and share us with your network. And if you have a moment to leave us a rating or a review on iTunes, we would greatly appreciate it.